Welcome to this week's Worldwide Podcast. I'm Miles Irving, and this week's podcast is a recording of a conversation with Bruce Perry. Yeah, I was in Wales for the Association of Foragers meetup a couple of weeks back. So myself and Nicola Burgess, um, fellow forager, mountain guide, and um, basket maker with wild materials. Yeah, so Nicola and I, we headed across the mountains and sought Bruce out um, where he's currently living and recorded this conversation. So it's quite a um, far-ranging conversation in a way, but we, we touch on a couple of subjects, one of which I want to allude to briefly. We've kind of hit the ground running talking about the ethics of foraging and the feasibility of more people foraging and uh, the thorny issue of commercial foraging. That led to a conversation about the court case that uh, my business, Forager Limited, had uh, with Natural England all over the you know the issue of foraging on sites of special scientific interest. And I think that conversation uh, on, on this podcast probably begs a few questions. It makes me realize we probably should do a special episode all around the issue of um, you know us us foraging for sea kale at Dungeness, um, controversies over mushroom picking in the new forest, uh, because there's been so many of these stories run which basically demonize commercial foraging and 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 are just basically not true because they allege harm and damage to ecosystems and to um, mushroom species and plant species, which which simply isn't happening, and uh, also greatly exaggerate the, the the scale of what's going on. But anyway, there's a lot of a lot of things that could be raised and discussed um, to uh, maybe answer some of the things which which are sparked in people's curiosity by listening to what is said in this episode. Um, the the bulk of the episode is um, exploring ideas that have come up from Bruce Parry's work over the last many years. Bruce, you probably are aware, was a presenter of uh, an amazing series or se- several series really of a program called Tribe, where he went and lived with tribal people all around the world, a lot, lot of different situations, a lot of different cultures there. But yeah, he's, he's obviously come back from that experience wanting to kind of make sense of it in terms of how he spends the rest of his life. And also there seem to be some insights that have really sat with him, which he's now kind of working with and, and uh, wanting to uh, get the message out with regard to those and, and find ways that perhaps, you know, insights from indigenous cultures could be applied to help us find a way forward, you know, as a, as a, as a species. And uh, yeah, that's, that's a theme that's very, um, very much one that comes up over and over again with the uh, World Wild podcast you know, that indigenous cultures, um, land-based cultures are basically holding the key for us to um, just to continue living on the planet, you know, and if we want to find new ways of being, new ways of living, new ways of relating to each other and to wild ecosystems, that that's where we need to go. We need to go and sit at the feet of the elders, as it were, and, and find out how to be. Okay, so I'm going to keep the intro brief because it's quite a long chat. Uh, so we'll move on to um, a conversation with Bruce Perry and Nicola Burgess. I suppose the starting point for me is is where we are now in terms of how much stuff there is that we are not making any use of whatsoever. And, you know, I think we should just start there. Let's worry about that carrying capacity thing once we've once we've got up there. Because in terms of all of this woodland products, we need to just go back a couple of centuries, like nineteenth century. Everyone was was you know bits of your house were made out of stuff from from the woods. <coughs> bits of all kinds of things, you know, whereas now we're pulling everything from somewhere else through mm. manufacturing processes and transportation that's completely unnecessary. So, you know, I think I think we should start with just 
using what's there to be used now and, and think about it as we go, you know, because it'd be a little mm. while before we got to the point where um, we, we push things over the limit. Agree with that. Who owns it there? It's trouble. It's like land ownership is at the heart of all these. It depends what you're referring to, but like the plants, that's, that's the thing that came out of my big uh, necessary uh, exploration of the law around this case with Natural England is, is I'm, I'm totally convinced that the property status of um, of all the wild plants. I'm not sure about trees. I think trees and wood might be a different matter, but but like the herbs um, and the mushrooms, they don't belong to anyone. So in other words, they are common goods, which I think is very very. Cool. I think the distinction is whether or not it's been de- whether or not it can be defined as a crop. Yeah. So if yeah, you're yeah. going in and taking apples from an orchard yeah. and somebody has planted those yeah. trees. You know, to, right, yeah. to grow the apples, or and I think there's probably an equivalent with woodland in that you can't, you can just march into the Sitka spruce plantation and start taking out trees for your own use. Um, whereas, obviously, the difference with the legal side of things is that those wild, naturally occurring plants aren't, it's not on the same level, yeah. it's not the same issue. Whereas, if it's something that's been deliberately planted, then that, that can constitute property. Is that really? Is that the? Is that how the law is defined? But what about trespass? Am I allowed to walk on to someone That's else's land matter. and take ma- and take mushrooms? It's not. But but the issue isn't the, the, the taking the mushrooms and being on the land are totally unrelated. So you can you 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 pick the mushrooms. Then he's called the cops because he doesn't want you there. The cops come and ask you to leave. You haven't committed a crime, but you kind of have to respond to what the cops have said. But the fact that you pick picking mushrooms is 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 a totally separate issue. Mm. It's not related to. Because so you, you, you go to Finland, you can walk on someone's land and take their mushrooms yeah. and no one can say anything about it. Yeah. Every man, you have right, man's right to write from time to same in Scotland. I don't know about... I'm aware. I don't know about the foraging. In, obviously in Scotland I know about right to roam, but I didn't mm-hmm. know about also taking plants. But I just don't know enough about the bylaws. I guess a lot of it's localised here, isn't it, as well? Well, as far as I'm aware, a lot, a lot, of, the, a lot of the bylaws are just unenforceable. Because like, the National Trust have something in their bylaws, but then they produce leaflets around... Uh, edible wild plants and stuff, so this, which is like tacit permission, and that's why they've not been able to prosecute anyone. So the, none of them the, in the Forestry Commission have bylaws, which which I think allude to the need for permission. But when they wanted to prosecute someone, as they would love to prosecute someone now, they used the Theft Act, and that was thrown out because it's not it's not workable. So basically, there is no workable piece of legislation. That can um, criminalise the act of, of, of foraging in, mm. in Britain, unless it's commercial. No, 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 no. No, but, no, but this was commercial. Though. This was, but I wasn't prosecuted. The, the the case the case that we had wasn't me being prosecuted. It was me appealing against a, a civil sanction, which was restricting our activities. It was you challenging the stop notice. I challenged them wasn't it? in the court. So had I not challenged them, I would never have been in court. I'd have just had this thing saying stop doing it. But the thing was that the, the stop doing it contained um, reference to a piece of legislation, which which uh, if you did what that says, you'd be committing a crime. So it says it's a, it's an offence to um, intentionally intentionally or recklessly destroy or damage any of the features for which land is of interest. So that that basically means when they make something a special scientific interest, they're saying these are the things which are interesting and. They'll put that in a document and name it. Yeah. Sea kale is not named in the document for this site. Is it not? But the but the uh, plant community of which it's a member is. So in order to destroy or damage the interest features of that site, I would have had to be destroying or damaging the plant community 
Mm. In other words, and there's plenty. Which you categorically weren't. Well, categorically this, this is the fundamental point of the whole thing, isn't it? But it, was, it, it is. There is a bit of a difference. You've got triple SI status, then yeah. then it does it does shift things around a bit, doesn't it? Well, I I don't feel it does. I think that, you know, okay. the, 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 just just in terms of the law saying that the crime that would be committed here mm. is to destroy or damage the interest features of the site. So anything yeah. you do that isn't doing that, there's there's no legal restriction on it. And it's very telling that they chose to use a stop notice to to stop us doing what we were doing. The stop notice says one of the reasons you should stop is because to carry on doing this would mean committing an offence, and then they list that offence. But if they thought we were committing that offence, there'd been a much easier way of dealing with it, which was having interviewed my guys, who all admitted that they were doing the, the thing that alleged to have done, pick the sea cow. They didn't interview my guys in relation to the offence that was alleged to be involved. I, they didn't say, so, you know, why did you destroy or damage the special interest feature of the site? Because there's no suggestion at that point that we did. So, you know, the law is pretty robust mm. to defend SSSIs as the thing that they, they've been set apart for as value. You know, like this is really important, this habitat, this ecosystem, this particular rare species was, if sea cow was one of those rare species listed, as the special interest feature, then to, to do anything to it would be a crime mm. because you you would be damaging one of those. Except you and I know that, like you know, you pull one thing in nature and it's attached to everything else. I mean, like there is a correlation between any disturbance, and I guess maybe they would say that this is an area that is we want to keep as it is because that is allowing for this. Thing. I mean, I don't necessarily agree with. It still, we mm. there's some places that are completely depleted. We've got like lead in the soil on this river that flies past, and there's all sorts of problems that come about as the poisoning of it, but now yeah, that's meant sure. that certain species yeah. have flourished. Yeah. So now you're not allowed to do anything about it because yeah. there's this poisoned area that serves it's like the whole thing's a madness in a way. But I get, it's not like I get, maybe that's the, 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 the direction they're coming from. Is that yeah. We've identified these as special and we want them mm. as, a, as a body of people. And therefore, don't fuck with anything in the area because you might mess that yeah, up. Yeah, but if I was to tell you that, that I mean, I mean I'm, just being, I'm playing yeah. advocate. I don't think that you picking sea cows is going to no, do that. But they spent three but years trying to having a conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but obviously it's a bit of a raw thing. So yeah, I'm going to come back with yeah. I was so very mindful of how I approach it with you. This is this is like I've nearly had three nervous breakdowns over this, yeah. but like you know. They they came back over the period of the three or four years the case was running, desperately trying to dredge up some kind of argument yeah. to support the idea that we were actually doing what that would suggest, i.e. undermining the ecosystem, mm. and they came up with diddly scores. Yeah. Actually, they came up with a pack of lies. They said, when you walk on the shingle, yeah, there's going to be all these seeds on the shingle that are blown in from here and there. You know, trust us, we're experts. The seeds are there. And when you walk... The seeds are going to be gradually shaken down so far into the stones they will not be able to germinate. And then they said, there's these little fine particles in amongst the shingle, which are very important for plants to germinate. Yeah. And when you walk on a shingle, you're shaking them down. So this is obviously your fault and not the sort of, you know, 6,000 dog walkers. Or yeah, all the dog walkers, yeah, who they don't put stock notices places, against you know, to say they're destroying or damaging it, special it, interest it is, it, you know, It is yeah. quite a specific environment. And the reason that we don't have a huge amount of sea cows because its habitat is relatively rare. Shingle, yeah. Stable shingle, though, isn't yeah. it? A specifically stable yeah. shingle. Um, and it needs that to establish itself. Again, you know, I'm not disagree with you at all but I think in terms of the perception 
but that's literally but the irony being obviously that there's there's no legislation to stop people walking on it, you know. And all they could come up with it was the walking that was doing it. They gave yeah. up arguing that the picking the shit seat <laughs> It was all about the walking, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I had Minsmere was my when I was in North at Minsmere was yeah. my local one and there was sea kale there as well. Then you go down like around um, well seven, seven yeah. Sister, oh, yeah, 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 not far from there. <laughs> um, and then where Sussex around Seven Sisters is the other place that I've seen vast amounts of sea kale. Yeah. And again, that's a very it's like Cookmere Haven. There's an incredibly busy beach, and the impact on that plant population, plant community. Is going to be far higher from just you know people just walking on the beach. Well, maybe it's so established that it's just like it's a it's created its own stability with its restructure. Mm. It? So like yeah. when it's starting out, it might be harder, but when it's actually really established, it might be. But my point being that that <laughs> do you see what I'm saying? My point being that you'd have to tell everybody that they can't walk on the beach and it's sea kale. So if there was a triple so, SI over a plot where the sea kale was trying to be protected itself as a spade and it's like you can't go in there even though it's this flourishing plot would you still think fuck the law i'm going in because it's like it's okay or if that was like the nation state in whatever form it had was trying to protect sea kale where where do you stand on that but that's a straw man argument because the sea kale is not vulnerable to to people walking around so yeah i mean okay it's it's there are things that are vulnerable there's a there's a plant called uh Oyster plant, which is not doing very well at all up in Scotland, because yeah, people are letting livestock down the beach, and it doesn't respond very well at all to 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 being trodden on and so on. But the sea cow does it, yeah, yeah, and 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 my we could change something. Yeah. Like that is, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm new, I'm new to all of this. I'm just I'm I don't know. I feel like I should do a bit of work on it because because it's just that the the. the you know, when when the when the Association of Foragers started out, half of the people had kind of swallowed a lot of this propaganda, and 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 there was a lot of work to be done to point out. You know. Well, my thing, my thing about this, not having, not really knowing much at all, and being relatively new to foraging in the UK, only the last three or four years. Um, I mean, having grown up in the countryside and having a, a wonder and sure, yeah, love, yeah. but like only to really start identifying world food. It's like you know, it is that sort of ethic of. Like collecting for yourself versus collecting for money is is a curious area, isn't it? Because it's like the sort of the, the ethic of like take enough for yourself versus take a take an amount for for a, a, a you know a wider group and make that your lifestyle. Well, of course that's okay if it's only a few people doing it. If that starts growing, then it does there does come a curious moment. It's like okay, what what is what is our best way forward as a as a populace trying to make rules for ourselves to deal with this? If yeah. it suddenly is is becoming depleted, because you might only take five percent, and the next person takes five percent, and next and before you know it, you've got yeah, a but, lot of people coming through. So there ha- that isn't happening right now, but is there? You know, if all of the land was like made common land, and we just let it all go back to rewilding, and like we all just fucking got on with it, which which I would love, <laughs> which is quite an unpopular thing to say living in wild. But, you know, that would make my heart sing. Um, that would be a different yeah. thing. And then we would all figure it out for each other, the, the sort of, like, what Eleanor Ostrom said about the tragedy of the commons yeah. not being true because we have actually, when groups of people 
live together, they'd figure it out for themselves. That's not the same as legislation, would be it's the first thing I would say. Yeah. So yeah. it's a more anarchical well, you're way You're talking about, which would be great. You're talking about custodianship yeah. from the local Consensus. community that's, yeah. that's engaged with and interacting with the natural environment. But then, then things like the harvesting for for commercial reasons would probably diminish anyway because you would be more... Absolutely. We've always yeah. said that we, we, we are going to be making ourselves obsolete. By doing what we do, we're creating a situation where there's a cultural value on these plants. And it's a, it's a very... I wish I could say this was this was something um, that, that, that I or we had thought up as a strategy, but we most certainly hadn't. You know, but to sit there and think, how would you get these things from total obscurity and in a lot of cases a sense of shame and like that's just skanky. You've yeah. got you yeah. know, pick some weeds and weed. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what if a dog's weed on that? You know, my granddad did that. Like he was starving in the walls. Exactly. There's all that kind of stigma attached yeah. to it. How would you turn that completely on its head? And we'd have thought, if we were strategic geniuses, we'd have thought, what we want to do is get the best chefs in the world to suddenly get really excited about this stuff and make it the centerpiece of some of their best dishes. And, and, and then that would be amazing because everybody would think it was great. Well, that's exactly what has happened yes, in the last beautiful. 10, 15 years. It is, it is really beautiful. And so as a result of that, there's a huge shift. And, and now I think it's beginning to be the take up of just ordinary people. Because it has popularised it, yeah. yeah. And in the end, there will, there will be still, you know, there'll be there'll be markets for various things, which which somebody wants to go to the trouble of making the big batch of Hawthorne Blossom Tea or the big batch of that commercial product, you know. But in the end, if if it comes down to it, that all the people in Whitstable are now switched on to the CV and the and the what's it, and we're still going in there trying to supply the ivy and cheekies and so on. I think it'd be absolutely fair enough. We say right. Job done, we're going to go and do something else now because this is a far better scenario. Yeah, the, the local people eating this mm. stuff is a far better scenario than some rich twat that doesn't know what he's eating. It, having that next to his poached egg in the ivy, you know. I, mean, I actually don't like that side of things. I don't like the fact that what I'm doing is feeding rich people that don't know the value of what they're eating. But it's a means to an end because of that cultural shift, you see. Mm. But I think that's already been achieved now. That cultural shift has been yeah. achieved. So we're in phase two now, which is get. get Get the man in the street to eat his sea beef. Yeah, yeah nice. No, I, I hear what you're saying. I love it. And there's so much more extra value as well to taking people out and introducing them to wild foods. And, you know, because just the, the layers and layers and layers of what you're actually taking in and taking on board. Yeah, that you're looking at all those other interactions that are going on in the environment. Um, you're paying attention all of a sudden. You completely, you know, you're really keyed into changes over the seasons. You're watching the whole cycle of plants. Like when I started getting into, you know, looking at Apiaceae and Bellifers, like the carrot family, and it's a you know, it's, it's, a, it's a huge family, mm. and it's got some really, really good wild edibles and in it, deadlies. and some really, really lethal plants. Yeah. So yeah, I spent just kind of identified the plants in my local vicinity, and then just watched them. Yeah, over the season. I mean, that's the one so thing I've got how out of forage is it's connected me on such yeah. a fast track to the seasons and to this nation. Exactly. And it's yeah. like as soon when I because I was living in Spain for years and I was making this film and in it I was like reconnecting to um, pre-domesticated societies, pre-agricultural societies. Yeah. And then I was also realizing the the benefit of community and wanting to live in community. And then. I was like, well, I need to come back to the UK, connect with the place I'm from, be in community. And then I was thinking, well, then I'm going to learn how to 
and permaculture and biodiversity. And I was like, what am I doing? No, I've just been making this film about fucking hunting and gathering. I need to wow. learn how to forage. That's yeah. what it's like. Give up yeah. that. I mean, like, yes, maybe I'm going to need to learn a bit of that. But what I really need to do is see what nature's about, what 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 nature wants to do, and try and fit in with that rather mm. than this whole mindset that I was, you know, the whole film was about. It's like that mindset of control yeah. and manipulation mm. is at the heart of so many of the problems we're in today. Mm-hmm. So let go of that. Yeah, I may well have to learn how to grow some shit because of the latitude and the space that I have and all that shit. But if I can also, like, really learn how to forage and mm. then, then that's going to connect me to this place and yeah. the journey i went on with that has just been phenomenal and i mean obviously i've still got generations to learn mm. i mean i'm not going to learn or you're also helping those species along which is what you know these people were doing you know hunter gatherer populations it's would not be... just passive i think there's a lot of room yeah, for us getting involved I I've there's an animal of accident no, there's no. always been about I mean, yeah, accidental it, and deliberate. Yeah, I took a little cultivation. Cultivation's I, not quite the right word, but you're um, not supposed to dig up wild stuff no. at the roots, are you? So well, I think it's the more, yeah. Like, yeah. But that's a complex one, isn't it? So there's some stuff that I have. I also took some ramsons that are growing just down yeah. the river, and I was like, "There's fucking millions of them here, and I yeah. reckon they might actually work out." Right at my place. So on I the just legal... took a little clump, and we'll see this year if they come back. Yeah, on the legal front, you need landowners' permission. From a common sense point of view, obviously, you know, have you got a huge, robust population? Is it actually going to have much of a negative impact on it to transfer part of that? As long as you're putting it in an appropriate habitat where it's mm. going to do well, it's not going to be interrupting other stuff. But again, this is a thing where you start looking at plants so much more and plant you know plant, communi- plant yeah. communities and you're seeing those are the interactions you're seeing effects of let's say trampling for example and you just start picking up on so much more um but yeah i mean because you're actually connected to the situation yeah. rather than being something that came in a packet from elsewhere so, you've got no idea yeah, that's what it's done for you yeah yeah it's but it's a thing that people effectively you know always done but you see where the problem arises is what I mean, you know, because because you're there doing that. Say you do something stupid, you know, it seemed like a good idea, but it causes a, a bit of an impact. But you'll see that, unlike anything else, you won't see it. So so then you can respond, and then mm. you can tell your mate like, don't do what, don't do that because this happened. Do it like this, and and that's the beginning of this kind of biocultural knowledge that that we used to have, and and and. But yeah, if you're working around native plants as well, indigenous plants, it's going to be hard to really, you know, we're not talking about taking cane toes to Australia or chucking grey squirrels at the UK. I don't think that if you're just sort of going, all right, okay, well, this is a plant that isn't really in my area, but I've got a suit, there's a suitable habitat. Well, it's only a few does Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Really nice to have a colony of them yeah. here. Yeah. But I'm sure that's And increasing happens. biodiversity so. isn't going to be a bad thing. You know, you're increasing, so. and I've done this in places where I've worked and I've chucked seeds about, I've brought stuff in and just widened the range of biodiversity. And unless you're putting something in that you know to be invasive and you know to be problematic, then there shouldn't really be much an issue. I mean, the issue for me is is basically that we just see each see ourselves and each other in 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 a, in a correct way, like biologically and ecologically. And the conclusion I came to, just looking at the ecological literature and that, where they, where they talk about keystone species that that, mm. that have such an effect that everything 
kind of works a lot better when that species is there, is that we are a keystone species. If you look at what tribal cultures have done. That's a really interesting way of thinking about it. The fact that the forest it? flourishes when they're there. Aboriginal yeah. Australia has totally transformed an entire continent. It looks, it looked vastly different from how it would have been had Homo sapiens not been on that continent for 50,000 years. Mm. And yet it was flourishing and thriving. You know? So yeah. my, my, my view is we just need to look at how to get back in to, to this position of being an integral part yeah. of the ecosystem that makes this thing flourish. So I think that's a more important point than the carrying capacity mm. idea about hunter-gatherers because we just don't know how we, with our current state of scientific knowledge, our ability to collaborate through global communication and everything like that, what we could come up with for how if we tinkered with this hillside and this landscape to make it vastly more productive of food than it ever was in, in the Mesolithic era. You know, I, mm. I, you know I, I think we have to dream like that because the fact is we don't have the option to carry on with this industrial paradigm. We don't. No, that's we have to come up with an alternative. And, and so my question would be, can we all become hunter and gatherers? It would be... How big a forest garden can we make? Well, no, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I'm going for the sort of philosophical kind of nuts and bolts of it to say, can we have a reciprocal relationship with the biosphere? Is it possible for us to relinquish power and control and, and this sort of disorderly fear that motivates everything we do? Is it possible for us to step out of that and back into a trusting reciprocal relationship? And I think it's, the answer has got to be not only yes, but we fucking have to. No, I mean, I totally agree with that, but it is a paradigm shift. Yeah. And you know paradigm shifts. Yeah. When you're talking to someone who's managed the land their whole life, and they went to agricultural school, and their yeah. granddad, and yeah. their great-granddad, and all the way back, as far as I can remember, and, they're, they're, and they, they are the last bastions of this land, mm. and they listen once again to all these people who come from the sea, but their whole philosophy is about control. It's yeah. all about control mm. and vermin control and plant yeah. control and pest control. And that is the vast majority of, of land ownership in our nation state at the moment. It's also and sh- that control is another paradigm to what you're saying. Yeah. And I don't see that shifting overnight because ultimately that's the sort of the battle between the sort of like... But it's, all, it's also all underpinned by the generation of profit and by monetary value. Yeah. And people get... But, I wouldn't be able to make any money if I was doing that. And that's a completely valid point. People have to make a living, you know, but, but well, a slow expansion of what's of the concept of value, totally. you know, of, of actually, the resources around you. Know, I know people who live very well without money and like, and sure. the happiest people on the planet. It's like, it's not just that. It's like, it's, it, it is, yeah, it's just shifting where we place our meaning, shifting where we place our values and shifting how we relate. But that is... For me, it is that paradigm shift, and I genuinely think the other side of it is a lot sweeter place to be. Mm. But we've had a long period of time creating this, and it's causing us so many problems. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's funny though, because you say we've had a long period of time, but but actually, it's only some of us have had a long period of time. You know, like there's there's, there's people still, as we speak, that, that have never left that. Yeah. The, the, the less likely yet were thought to be the controlling elements of power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But still, I'm just saying that like, that is a way of life that, that is uninterrupted in some cases. Mm. Not yeah. everyone joined the Neolithic Revolution, you know, cause even though it's been running for a while, right? So a few people have continued to opt absolutely. out, you know. Yeah, right. absolutely. I mean, the thing is, and it's what I'm writing a manifesto at the moment for the community, and it's like, and it's, and it comes down to power. And, and I think when you look at the Neolithic Revolution and when it kicked in, 
yeah. as soon as you start manipulating the landscape, the, the, the hunter-gatherer can't coexist with that farmer, so that he has to either assimilate or move, or retreat, yeah. or, or is exterminated. And of course, the expansion of those, um, of those early farming communities would have just been much bigger because of the surplus, and so that just spread like wildfire around the world, and everyone has either assimilated, exterminated, or retreated, and on it went. And there's nothing that could be done about it. You take the forest down, the hunter together has to fucking go. Uh, but I think it's like that with power as well. It's like as soon as you come into these new spaces now, where it went from egalitarianism into now chiefs and shamans and, and like centralized power, the people, maybe it's the people who held onto the stores to get them through the winter or to get them through the drought or whatever it was, they're the ones that were able to you to be corrupted by manipulating it coming out and again once that power comes in that's another thing that just probably rampaged around the world because you've got a powerful being with a group of people that he's controlling then it's very hard for the sweet hunter-gatherer egalitarian groups to to defend themselves against that so that was another thing that probably just swept the world in a really rapid way and now we're left with almost no memory of this time that we were actually living in harmony, other than a few creation myths of like an Eden type history. Um, I, mean, I, I genuinely believe that yeah. is how it yeah. was. And but the trouble is, is that power base is really, really, really hard to undo. I mean, and that's what we're dealing with now because the power base is so rampant and out of control. It's ever diminished size but increasing power I mean fewer and fewer people earning more and more and having more and more power around the world um, and I think there is a revolution that can happen around that but but without the right narrative we're really we're really going to struggle to, 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 to diffuse that because we all believe it's that's the way it's always been that we we think that power's integral like Hobbes is yeah Leviathan like yeah that's that's yeah, that's the grew, nature of people. We all They're grew just up like with that, that, you know. Yeah, we all yeah. grew up with the novels that tell us that we'll all tear each other apart. With like original <laughs> sin that tells us the same. With strong central government, with Hobbesian views, all of these things are just telling us you've got to have strong government or and central power to keep us all in check, you know. And that's been like that. And most of us look inside and go, I don't want to go on the journey because like beneath all the layers is like is really shit. So just keep on. Keep on moving. Don't be. Don't be still. And this is the narrative of our time. And mm. uh, and that that and that makes it really hard for people to challenge the power base. I mean, we all send our kids to school and love the fact that they're in competitive, you know, competition at school, competition in the workplace, competition between nations. I mean, it's, no one even considers it as being as being like detrimental to damaging. Yeah. It's just absolutely written into the fabric, as is the, the, mm. the, the masculine aspect of our society and the decision-making happening from mostly men um, over, the, over the eons. And like all of these things, we just can't, we can't see outside of them. It's like it's ever been thus. We just believe that's the case. And I think it's going, it's going to be really hard to challenge that. I think that's, what, that's, what part, that's part of what keeps people on the treadmill, isn't it? Ultimately, it's this deeply ingrained cultural social idea that you have to be better than somebody else and that culture of competition completely underpins that yeah we're just addicted to growth and the more and more we become individualized the more we get separated the more we need all of all these things to fill the void and hence the addictive patterns continue yeah. and all the wounding we don't have any tools to deal with all of our psychological issues
this issue, the psychological issues which are getting worse and worse <coughs> as a result of not being community and, and kids just absorbing as, as sponges everything that happens in their early years and the breakdown of community, meaning that we all are just carrying those traumas and we don't have the tools to undo them. And so all of this Sweet, stuff yeah. is coming together to like a really complex space that we're in at the moment, yeah. not a very healthy one. I mean, I just think in terms of in terms of remedy, we we are we are talking about it, you know, because the the, the the you know the basis of biology is is this kind of safe space that we all lack, you know, like when when people can stop and be still, and that's what getting back on the land does. That's what mm. entering into some kind of local <clears throat> collaborative situation with other people does. You know, we we just become like the herd that that you've just been chased by a tiger, but you come back and stand with the herd and start grazing again. You know, all the, all of the factors are there: your own body, the other people, the land, and we're back. Like, and, and, and so, you know, I think much as I'm like into into yoga and all of these clever tricks now for dealing with trauma. You know, this funny thing when they wave your fingers. You know that one? <laughs> Do you know that? They're like you remember something and they did this thing. It's ED something. Or other. It's amazing. It, it, is it a tapping one? Or is it? A, it's, I've had the. I can't remember what it's called. Where you're tapped, like it was amazing. I burst into tears. So there's all there's these tears. extraordinary yeah. things that, that that do that stuff, but <clears> but they're all kind of like replacing and and just because we're so broken, we need these extra tools. But actually, the original tools mm. are you just be still and feel your body. Mm. You just smile and yeah. and be with people and 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 listen to people's gentle sing song voices, and you just ah. Uh, or you just get out and start touching soil and land and other species and, and all of those things just bring us out of the trauma and back into into presence you know that's like and and it's so available like yeah. that stuff is so available it's just we we need to come to the table and, and sit down and eat you know like it's just <laughs> it's, it's like, I've been thinking about community a lot as well in the last few years and there's this <sighs> Yeah, like it's wonderful to have this freedom. It's wonderful that we have these opportunities to go and explore and be in different places and meet all kinds of, of different people and be in different environments. But there's also a huge loss there. And that it's been a relatively recent shift as well away from people spending their whole lives in the place they grew up. Mm. Their whole lives around the same people. They're you know, being deeply embedded and deeply connected to that group of people. It's, it's not going to be a utopia because, you know, there's always going to be an amount of conflict. There's always going to be an amount of, you know, issues. So, but I think that the loss of that, potentially the loss of that, just that stability and that connectedness to other people. And you know these people, you've known them your entire life. And that because that's a relatively recent loss for us, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that, you know, there's a lot of that root of... You know, people struggling a lot with anxieties, people struggling with mental health issues more. Um, that's yeah, it's just a bit of a personal. Well, I think I think you're, it, I think you're right in many ways in that we did have much more connected lives recently. But I think that there's a couple of other things that are interesting in the journey that I've been on in learning this. It's like so when I used to go and live with tribal groups around the world, mm. I could see. All the wonderful benefits of, of meeting an indigenous group. Okay, so they're, yeah. they're, there's community, as you said, they all know each other. They have uh, wonderful um, belief systems. They have healing systems. They are connected to each other. They're connected to land. They're connected to the spirit realm and their ancestors. You know, all mm. this stuff that we're sort of waking up to and learning about now, proving really useful in our society is like, 
we're learning some of these things that we've lost. But when I really also looked at them, I was like, yeah, but in many other ways, you've got the similar types of stresses and strains that we have in that there is inequality in your society and that you are receiving the problems of having uh, leadership that's maybe not working out or, or all of that stuff. And when you look at the studies now in our society, there's a really interesting guy I interviewed a while back called Richard Wilkinson who does studies on inequality and how that relates directly to so many of the problems we have, whether they're health problems or antisocial problems or yeah, criminal absolutely, problems. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. It's not about being poor, it's about feeling poor, and that's about inequality. Yeah. So when I then, at the end of my time visiting all these tribes, finally met a group who were truly egalitarian, I realised, oh, actually, no, the biggest thing that we're missing, we lost a long time ago. And even all of those other tribes that look like they're ancient, look like they've been around forever, Actually, and they're of course wonderful, I'm not taking anything away from them, mm, sure. but they were in many ways on the same conveyor belt as we're on now mm. into separation, which came yeah. around from that separation from initially hierarchy, power, getting yeah. out of control, becoming centralised, and all the problems that we're now experiencing as a result of all of those things that that conveyor belt takes you towards. Mm. Whereas the groups before which is like what I only discovered right at the end when I finally met an egalitarian group. It was like literally like walking into another paradigm. It's like, fuck, you guys are completely different. I couldn't put my finger on it at first. It's like, what is it that's so different about you? You look the same. You're wearing T-shirts. You're smoking. It doesn't feel like... It's like it's really hard to discern what the real difference is. But I know because I've lived with all of these other tribes that you are... Um, there's something completely different about you and it's only later I realised shit it's because you have no competition (laughs) and no hierarchy in your society there's no chiefs there's no shamans and every single person in your society is equal and not only equal but like empowered individually to be the voice of of, as as much as anyone else and and everyone works on a daily basis to make sure because they all hold the same narrative if power gets centralised if power gets out of hand it can only get corrupted. So everyone is working to bring people up and to bring people down mm-hmm. using all the different skills that they have, yeah. which is wow. play and joking and teasing or sex strike or ritual or ostracization or whatever the tools are, yeah. many of them, but they're all working to one thing, which is like no one is more than mm-hmm. everyone's the same. And that to me is like, fuck, that's the missing piece. Yeah, That's the missing piece. It's like, because you, you say... You know, we had all this connection only a recent time ago. It's actually those communities. Yes, they may have been amazing a few hundred years ago in our society, but they still had a, still a lot of the problems of oh yeah, absolutely of, of just, leadership and yeah. complications through power. And, you know, we've had massive power problems in us in our societies over the for, yeah. you know, for a long period of time. That's the bit I wanted to bring back. It's like shit. No, actually, egalitarianism was probably our, our most successful way of being for 95% of our time on the planet that existed before the Neolithic Revolution. And that is the key element to so much of what you're saying about our returning to, or not returning to, but like our reimagining how we can be nature-connected, how we can be part of the ecology. And that, I think, really has to come into the story too. It's like, if we can, if we can re find that narrative that puts us back into nature and inequality with each other then we have a fighting chance of 
but we start by getting back into it because what they didn't lose was was that there was the reciprocity with with land right the, the, the thing is that where where they they didn't cross the line that we've crossed of, of dominating land that's kind of funny like that 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 it's it's corrupted the interpersonal relationships between people but like the interspecies relationship between land is still pretty strong where yeah, people are think, still hunting again yeah i mean like um, I don't know if you saw the film I made, Tawai, but in it, one of the things that, that we sort of touch on is that actually hand in hand with this um, with this shift from the nomadic hunter-gatherer to the, you know, to the settled farmer is you've got all the obvious stuff of the egalitarianism and all these other things that, that you can see and how they're sharing and their economy and all of this is like there's a clear shift. Um, and this other one, as you just mentioned, is that, that you go from a place of basically being in symbiosis mm. towards a place of control and manipulation and domestication and therefore feeling and seeing yourself as above it and superior to yeah. it, mm. which you can imagine happening at the time. It's like, fuck, I can do anything to nature because I'm God and actually God looks like me and on you go with the whole journey we've been on. But the bit that I, I kind of came across in a, in a sort of moment of realisation um, was that actually hunting and gathering is in its own right a form of inner balancing and it is a kind of a meditation you know yeah. if you're if you're yeah, out absolutely. trying to catch the monkey you've got to be fucking present you've got to yeah. be in your body you've got to be yeah. in your senses you've got to be fully alert to everything otherwise if you're drifting off thinking about <laughs> tomorrow's meal you're going to step on the twig and you won't get it you'll start mm -hmm. so you've got to be present and likewise as you guys know especially <clears throat> with foraging you know Rather than just playing things in a row with a pair of headphones on or driving a tractor, it's like you can just be anywhere you want. You're not connected to it at all. I mean, you can be a fully connected farmer, but you don't have to be. Whereas when you're foraging, you have to be alert to what nature is doing, what nature is providing, where it is. You can't just stroll along, walking a dog, looking at the horizon, whistling Dixie. You've got to like be attentive in the same way as the hunter is. You've yeah. got to be attentive. Where would the mushroom like to be right now? Yeah. Where Where is this hedgerow? And maybe, it would, you know, all of that stuff. This is an ideal area for this. And you know, all of those things mean you have to be there in that moment. Mm -hmm. And I think that is one of the other things. It's like, and we talk about this in the film, it's like when you have that daily meditation of being present on a daily basis, your mind is much more balanced and your body is much more balanced. And it's probable that that sense that so many people talk about when you go on a meditation retreat of like, oh my God, I feel connected, you know, I feel at peace. It's like that was probably our natural state. We, yeah. we had a daily inner practice that brought us into a place that brought us into our body. And we yeah. know that our heart is the center of feeling empathy yeah. for the world and our senses. And so we were like basically able to be in our body and feeling empathically each other and nature and when you're feeling empathic, you don't want to fuck it over. You don't want to fuck over the plants because you're feeling them. It's like, if I hurt you, I'm hurting me. And and that, I mean, it seems logical. And you lose that space also. Yeah. If, if I do that, I step out of this lovely yeah. space that we're in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that's another thing that I've also just had from wild food. It's like, God, I feel amazing when mm -hmm. I do it. It's just it's such a nice walk. And then like a meditation class, you end up with dinner. <laughs> yeah. <Bonus>. Yeah. <laughs> it's, but it's inherently more meaningful as well yeah. and this is this is why you know kind of 
the idea of just different ways in which one can use natural resources to produce things that are useful, that you need, that fulfil, you know, needs. Um, and yeah, it's just because it is just inherently so much, yeah, it's more meaningful. It's not an abstract idea mm. of, oh, I need to calm my mind. You're like, I'm going to go out and see what I can find to chuck in the pot. Yeah, what can I bump up my dinner with? And, and, and it's, you know... It's just it's, like it's, life it's, it's is like nourishing your, your body yeah. as well. It's about your nutrition. So yeah, and it has a philosophy behind it as yeah. well. You know, a lot of the other philosophies <clears throat> that come with some of these other healing practices often, and you know, and I've got to be careful with my words because, like, I, this isn't. I'm not trying to belittle or, or downplay because I obviously don't know any more than anyone else. Um, but if those philosophies are all about like almost like moving away from the material, moving away from nature, moving, away, right. yeah. moving yeah. away from this earthly realm yeah. and all the earthly yeah. ups and downs, then that doesn't help either. Whereas when you get yeah. back into like either um, more shamanic practices or plant-based practices or whatever, that actually the earth is is very much part of that and like all that goes with it. And I, I like that, which is why I agree with you. I think that like a good forage... Uh, foraging excursion is is an amazing mm. meditation. Yeah, I mean, meditation, comes a good philosophy mm. meditation mm. itself in the traditional sense, you know, it's, it's fascinating and there are lots of really interesting things about it and the neurological impacts. But yeah, for me, I would, I would, I would much rather. I'm terrible at meditation anyway. Like, my brain's too noisy. I mean, I have to say, I have to say that I've had huge healings in mm. my life. And, you know, it was interesting what you said earlier as well about actually it's enough to just go into nature. And I, you got me thinking when you said that. I was like, okay, is it is it enough? Is it enough? I do, I do. Well, I, maybe not from the starting point we have, you know. Maybe because, not, maybe not. Because it's like, you know, I, I mean, the thing is, I don't know, like, you. I mean, like, I just don't know. I'm just vibing with the conversation. But, like, all I know is that some of these practices, like going on a week-long Vipassana, for example, mm, yeah. um, has had a profound effect on me. Um, and a tool that I've been able to use in my life, even though I spent a lot of time in nature before, it's like definitely something shifted for me in a much bigger way. What I didn't do is though buy into the whole philosophy behind it and all the rest of it, uh, the, the sort of end result of where, where that might be wanting to take me. It's yeah. like, no, no, I'm not trying to leave this realm or become enlightened. I'm yeah. trying to be here. So I don't necessarily buy into the philosophy, but the tool itself was amazing. And likewise with shamanic stuff, you know, I've, I've um, had extraordinary experiences with taking various plant medicines mm. but again I don't necessarily buy into deifying the shaman because again I much prefer an egalitarian but they would yeah. never allow a shaman to stand there and go I'm going to it's like fuck that no, everyone's equal but these tools do have <clears throat> maybe stepping stones for us to get back to a place of, of equality and healing and I genuinely have I don't know, I want to give a bit of a big up to some of these things because they have really helped me quite a lot. Yeah, sure. But I don't buy into the... I still buy in... I still buy into the, the, the you know, us being with nature is the end end place, not the, necessarily the other... Well, one of, one of the things coming back to is is that our body is nature and this interpersonal mm. space is nature. You know, I think that's fantastic because, you know, like, just, just as all of that stuff evolved over millions of years with little tugs and moves and shaping either way so that everything fits together 
and so on. This this capacity that we have to relate to each other is is mm. the product of that, and it's it's just as wild as anything else you'd you'd, you'd care to point. It's interesting, to, isn't it? Because it's like a play on words in a way. It's like what's natural, what's unnatural, what's nature. You know, because people would say like, well, plastic in the oceans is natural. Because we're nature and we did it, therefore yeah, it's natural. It's like, because we've stepped outside of this flow, you know. You we're into this mechanical thing that fucks it, you know. I, I agree, but it just depends on what you want to yeah. say is, you know. So I was just, I, I guess maybe I was misunderstanding you because I thought you were kind of going along with saying like all we do is also nature. And no, I'm, not all we do. So so what we do, what we do most of the time is we sit in a room and think, I wonder what he's thinking about me and... And, and, and then, oh, I've got to do that tomorrow, and all this yeah. total non-present <clears throat> stuff. So that's not natural. That is that is a that is a abstraction. It's an abstraction, exactly. It's a non-presence, and it's a result of the fight or flight thing, which is natural, mm. having having been pushed into overdrive. So that instead of just hopping into fight or flight and coming immediately back into our bodies and each other and, and presence and land, you know, we now get stuck there. So that's that's our mental activity. That's the nature of our interactions based on fight or flight. We're now trying to secure our position within this thing by edgy, you know, manipulations <laughs> and so on. You know, we just wouldn't have done that, right? I mean, you've seen that in practice. I mean, yeah. I, I I'm, I'm, I, I'm a real fan of Ian McGilchrist, actually. I, he's someone that features in the film I make. And, like, so often we'll get into brain talk when we get into this space. And, like, flight or fight, obviously, is a limbic area and uh, adrenaline area and all this sort of stuff. And, um, and that would be... Um, like a, a an early part of our brain before the um, the neocortex and all of the other stuff that came on came later. What Ian talks about is the sort of left and right hemispheres, and I find that really interesting because he relates to a lot of the problems we're having today as as a predominance towards the left, and that having this sort of way of experiencing the world as a very separating way and a very mm. controlling way and a competitive way. And all this sort of stuff, and so to me, that just like also yeah. what you're saying about flight or fight, yeah. I also want to give a big up to Ian because I think that he's answered some really interesting shit as well with his philosophy. And then it's just, you know, once you understand that as well, it, it allows for these practices to be able to bring our awareness back into the right, which has the place, the capacity for empathy, it has the capacity for seeing the bigger picture, has the capacity for seeing things to be interconnected and alive. And so it feels like th this is another part of that story that um, of, of where we're essentially not functioning at our highest. I mean, I suppose it's all about us being in a bit of ourselves when, when you like to the fight or flight being that is a genuine and important part of biological experience. You know, to be able to deal with a crisis and and act yes, totally. accordingly. But like that's just a bit of us. But now it's. Nearly all of us, you know, we're like <clears throat> most of the time, and and like the the left brain, right brain thing is supposed to be this absolute sort of synchrony between the two, so that it it all it all works well. You know, we we get stuck here. Which, which was it? Did you say so left we get st here? stuck yeah. in the left. Yeah. yeah, what he says is the way that the brain works best is the information that comes streaming in through all the senses, kind of is first experienced through the right, and that's the one that basically perceives and receives all that is which is like in a way what you would have in a um in a in a space where you're just experiencing the universe as it is in that moment but then what's supposed to happen is then that information is just too overwhelming to really be able to do a lot so 
through the corpus callosum. It's filtered and then thrown into the left, which then makes a map and a plan of things so that it takes out a lot of the information and puts things into its separate bits so that I can fucking get through the day um, because otherwise it's just too much. But what's mm. supposed to happen is then that information, which is then all this sort of filtered, separated out bits, should then be put back into the right, so that you yeah. can put that useful information back into the wisdom of the whole again. Yeah. But we've got a brain system that is like keeping it stuck in the left. And there's all these experiments that have been done, super interesting, that show what a world when you're stuck in the left is like and a world that you're stuck in the right is like. Uh, or not stuck because you wouldn't be stuck the right would always like the balance whereas the left likes to hold on and so the world uh, as he sees it and he makes a very compelling pay, uh, case is this um, is this separated deanimated um, sort of like um, space that we all know very well but that's like that's the malfunction and if that could only that information could only be placed back in the right which is what things like meditation do what foraging mm. does it's like it allows you to feel that sense of connection again. It's like, oh shit, yeah, I've still got this information, but maybe I just apply it in this way. And it's not about just using trees as fucking crops, but maybe seeing them as life forms. And, you yeah. know, so it's that's that's the journey to go on. It's like re bringing it back into that into yeah. inner balance that will become an outer balance. Well, there's another there's another sort of explanatory frame which which is. I think definitely touching on some of the same territories. So there's this thing called the um, what's it called the, the polyvagal theory. Have you run into that? No. So that basically breaks down um, our sort of uh, overall neurophysiology. That's how the guy talks about mm. it. Our neurophysiology has basically got three different modes, and one of them is the fight or flight, um, which is which is old. That's so like the limbic brain, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And there's one that goes even further back in evolutionary terms, which is um, the uh, it's, it's it's called the the shutdown or the freeze thing. So that's like a lizard feigning death or or something like that. But but we do it when we shit our pants when we're afraid or or, or we just people just become catatonic. That is is it's it's called the ancient vagus system. So it's basically. Fight or flight and, and this freeze thing are two ways of dealing with difficult situations. One, one when they're just beyond the pale. The best thing you can do is pain death. <laughs> then shut down. But if it's not quite beyond the pale, you're going to fight or flight. You're going to yeah. run. or So that's activating. The other one's deactivating. But the thing in the middle, this this theory is proposed. There's a guy called Stephen Porges. And he's saying that the thing in the middle is, is, is an advanced mammalian uh, neurophysiological system. Which he just calls uh, the the, um, the social engagement system, but it's our um, it's it's the other I think it's called the ventral vagus nerve, which is um, quite an important nerve, um, and it does amazing things like it's connected to the muscles in your face and your ear. So when the social engagement system is activated, you're you're very tuned into the sort of middle vocal range, so you can tune into human speech really well. Whereas when when you're in the other ones, you you tune into sort of high and low sounds, which are basically predator sounds. So, for example, people can't really listen to each other when they're angry. Mm. Is is actually they're finding it difficult to to actually hear and understand the words because their middle yeah, ear is is, yeah, is yeah, tuned yeah. out. Yeah. And then um, things like the, the the face thing is like smiling and and the little creases around the eyes, which which basically 
is he goes into all this. He says these are basically cues of safety. When we when we hear that sort of sing song voice that 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 is ideally linked to that social engagement mode, when we see people smiling and 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 their little eyes crinkling with the, with the laughter lines, it makes us feel okay. Bruce is not a threat. Nicholas not a threat. I'm safe here, and it enables bonding to, to occur between people. But his point is that that's where we're supposed to be all the time, apart from these mm. occasional situations which would induce the shutdown and, and, the, um, and the fight or flight. And, and the sort of masterstroke of the theory is that he says, well, this is actually the neurophysiological state which promotes digestion, it promotes the immune system, it promotes creativity. So it's, it's just like we're... we're that's where we're supposed to be, kind of. Bring it on. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's cool. Is that, that that's, I haven't run into much around that left-right brain thing, but it's, it's Yeah, it's I mean, amazing. it was kind of thrown out it's years different. ago as being, like, yeah. um, being a bit too simplistic. And uh, I think Ian, I mean, who's a proper scientist. He was, like, uh, elect, three times elected to All Souls College. I don't know if you, it's like, you know, only a few ever get in. Um, of people who've done the best at Oxford all around the world, and they'll like take in one or two every year just into that space, and then they're given free reign to just study whatever they want without any worry. Or they get paid to just study for years because they're wow. the best of the country, basically. And so he was in that for years and years and years. And so he's he's not a slouch mentally. And then he went off and was um, uh, and he worked at Maudley College for many years. He became, basically started out doing English, and then he learned different languages and then he became a doctor and then he became a fucking, you know, he's just constantly studying. So he was like, studied, he ended up through this journey of trying to figure out why some things were, like in poetry, you can't deconstruct poetry and that was his like journey. And then he ended up being a doctor and learning about mental health issues and on that sort of, you know. so he spent like 20 years doing it all and wrote this tome called The Master and His Emissary. And to me, The Master and His what? The Master and His Emissary. Um, which was like a reference to, I think, a Nietzsche um, poem or something. And either way, it to me, because I went and interviewed loads and loads of people when I was making my film, and he just answered all of it. I was like, oh my God, you already, you've got it, you know. Because what I was really wanted... I'm annoyed that I haven't seen it now. I actually got a ticket for it in Hebden Bridge. Okay. And then I ended up... Yeah, we had about 300 people in Hebden Bridge. There's a big old cinema there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great. Yeah. I've got quite a few friends in Hebden. Yeah. Yeah, I can't remember why I couldn't come in the end, but I was really annoyed about it. Well, we, anyway, we, we had, you know, we, we had a lot of scientists and we interviewed loads and, mm. and they, of course, they're amazing in their own right. Um, of course they are. I mean, like, God, I mean, I mean, like, really amazing. But for some reason, in the end, it's just Ian's theory and philosophy offered, for me, like, a grounded answer to so many of these thoughts that I'd had. It's like, mm. finally, it's like, Here's someone who's talking about the way the brain works in a way that allows for me to understand connection, spirit, all this stuff, and the healing, and all. It's like it was just it. It just for me, it just like landed it all. It's like rather than so many of these other theories that are out there that you know people come up with their various theories and they seem to answer, but they rely on you just buying into that somehow. Whereas this was one that's like here's some tests, here's some studies, here's some proof, here's some, st-, and it's like. Okay, I'm I'm with you, mate. You sound great. Mm. Yeah, it was really good. It was really good. Um, so he became like the main feature in the film, um, which is quite weird. Like putting all your eggs into one basket. It's like, <laughs> but I'm in, mate. I you fucking you you're no slouch. I'm I'm with you. 
And it ties into, presumably it ties into the other stuff we're talking about with these egalitarian... Um, not so much, no, no, no. no. He no. just really answered more to the sort of the different paradigms, the different ways. Well, I mean, it does, because, of course, if you're living an empathic life, if your empathy is very much at the heart of how you're experiencing the world, then you do want things to be harmonised over time, because your pain is my pain, so I don't want to be... You know, it, it, it allows another piece of the jigsaw to see why it is that, it, that if you're really in a much more felt way of being... That, that there's a greater chance that I'm going to want harmony around me. Mm. And obviously, mm. a, a, like a, a society of equals is more harmonious than a society of yeah. you know, hierarchy. So it, I wouldn't say it's the thing, but it probably helped um, alongside... I mean, there's a whole bunch of reasons why our hunter-gatherer ancestors were probably egalitarian. It's like it was rational as well. You know, if I go out and catch it, like, we're, we're together, we all go off hunting, I get the pig... What am I, if I just keep that for myself and we're nomadic, it's clearly not a very cool way of doing it because I've got to carry the whole fucking thing. Yeah. I can't store it. It's going to go off in a few days anyway. So yeah. it's much better. It's much more rational for me to slice it up, share it out, and then in the hope that when you get one tomorrow, you'll <laughs> do the same. Yeah. So there's a real rationality. But when you start settling, then you can start accumulating and then you can start all of you know, or you know, you can start storing, and and, and you that, can start not needing other people, not apparently. needing other yeah. people, yeah. and all these things. So, in many ways, you could go, and like, and many anthropologists did. It's like, well, that form of egalitarianism it could only really occur because they were nomadic hunter-gatherers, and like rationally, that's how they did it. But now that we're doing this other thing, it does it doesn't work anymore. But for me, it's like, no, that's not that's not it, because yes, you can see the rational difference. But the but the the experience of being with a group of people who live like that was like phenomenal for me. It's like no no, no this this isn't just that they rationally decided to enter into hierarchy because that worked for them better. No no, it's bollocks. That this way of being really had something about it when you when you spend time with them. It's like they genuinely. Um, like I said earlier, they were living in another paradigm. And the experience of love and connection and empathy and um, um, love, I guess, in that place where everyone's together was just so profound and so manifold and so much more than I experienced anywhere else that um, I felt, no, something really big has been lost here. Uh, and, you know, and of course they did have abundant resources all shared out in, you know, equal access to abundant resources and all of these things that allowed for that type of society to be which might have been harder when you leave and you come into the temperate zones and you've got to get through harsh winters mm. and stuff so you know i can see why there's reasons that that might have shifted um you do see explanations i've been reading a bit about the um canadian indigenous tribes which are quite hierarchical yeah and and, and a few times the the the, the the author sort of stops and says, you know, because if somebody wasn't making a plan, blah, 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 and turns totally. that sort of but Because this never made it to the Americas. We yeah. look at, we look yeah. at like the Amazon and think, oh God, there's untouched tribes there. Maybe they're the oldest. But it's like, <laughs> this way of being never even made it to the Americas. Because in the Americas, there's only been, you know, people have only been there the last 10, 15,000 years anyway. Um, 
And to have ordered to get there, you'd have had to left the tropical belt, gone up through the fucking Bering Strait, through the cold zones, and come back down again, and then repopulated the Americas. Mm. It's like, it's well considered that egalitarianism probably never made it into the Arctic and around. So people are writing about this, are they? The, the idea that, 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 that our beginnings were like that, and that somehow, as long as people actually tackling I mean, it's, that. It's, a... it's, uh, I'm saying this like it's a truism. There are anthropologists, like yeah. high-level anthropologists. My my favourites that I uh, I'm actually I call myself even a friend with because I am being very lucky to have met them and spent time with them is Jerome and Ingrid Lewis, Jerome's from UCL, and then Chris Knight and Camilla Power from the Radical Anthropology Group. And they're oh, all, my furthest has hung out with those guys. I've mentioned that group. Okay, yeah. So what the Rag, the Radical Anthropology Group? Yeah, they're cool. And so a lot of what I'm saying is has been sort of originated there, but it's increasingly um, accepted now through those who understand these, uh, what they call instant return nomadic hunter-gatherer groups. Because obviously, like me, if I hadn't met them, I could have waxed lyrical about all my experiences of living in the tribes, thinking I know everything about human nature going all the way back. But it's only when I met that group, I was like... Mm-hmm. That's weird, right at the end of right, your journey. It was literally the last group that I met. It's like you've been set up yeah. to... Yeah, and I and I genuinely think that if I hadn't done all of the other tribes beforehand, I wouldn't have even noticed because you go and meet them and they just look like everyone else. Like, oh, there's a sweet group of people. But it was only because I'd lived with so many others that I was like, God, there's something totally different going on. So who were the two tribes, Bruce? So I lived with the Penan, which was I did a TV show with. Yeah. And then I also went and um, visited with Jerome and Ingrid Lewis, uh, the Benjeli in Africa, who were like the oldest. Okay. And I didn't put that into the film to why in the end, but that is the, the there's a little sort of sequence of me being with them that's on my website, BruceParry.com. And in that you'll see me meeting and talking to them. Because that is and what I learned with Jerome and Ingrid and meeting that group was like probably the biggest um influence <laughs> in my life and insight that I've gained in all everything that's shaped my life since um, and all this sort of drive towards egalitarianism and my belief that we can have a revolution and how that could come about my understanding of sex and gender and power and politics and all of these things have come about from those basically those two tribes that I've spent time with um, and they're quite different but they're both egalitarian tribes they they enact it in different ways but um they you both. say a bit more about the sex and gender thing. Then. It sounds like that's... Um... Well, well, I mean, <laughs> maybe not yet. <laughs> okay. You're still mulling that, are you? No, it's not. I'm still mulling it. It's like, um, well, you know, it's a big one to go into, isn't it? And I'd rather... I'd, no, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not dissing your question, but that's really mean of me, isn't it? Um, now, obviously, I have to talk about that, but um, it's the most complex aspect of the whole thing, for sure is they do have a more binary perspective of sex and gender than we do. Um, and that is that is whatever it is. Um, what I'm interested in is how, the, um, how their understanding of these things helps them maintain balance. That's, I'm, I'm, only, I'm not interested in turning back the clock and all becoming like them. I'm interested in what can we learn from them and apply it towards the future. But I mean, what I'm most interested in, because I think I got some of this out of listening to you talk at um, Port Elliot. Okay. Is that there's 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 a serious challenge to to 
patriarchy and this stuff that, that actually suggests a really positive way forward kind of thing. I think so, yeah. A non-demonising of blokes, just like a, the women handling the guys really well. I, I totally agree, yeah. In a I way totally that there's, everyone benefits sort of thing. Yeah, it was like, it was really beautiful. When I, so when I met the Panan, and when you see it in the film, you don't really see the female voice very powerfully in that film. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. And, and I don't need to get into that. But like, basically, they're existing in a in this very placid, calm way where their their whole way of being is kind of like so harmonized that you don't see how it, you don't see how it's happening. It's like they're just existing like this. Um, but when I went to when when I met Jerome and Ingrid. Um, Lewis, they were like, oh Bruce, yeah, to live in a an egalitarian society takes a lot of work. You got to work at it politically, economically, spiritually, sexually. You got to, you know, it's work. Everyone's working the whole time to maintain balance. But I didn't really see that when I was with the Panan. But when I went to with them to see the Benjeli, who are con- who are um, pygmy group living in the Congo, mm. um, I was it, it was much clearer this work that's at play for them to be able to maintain balance. Um, and and some of that are these rituals they have when um, the the men get together and do various things and the women get together and do various things um, and one of them is the women coming together to basically playfully point out uh, the areas where perhaps the, 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 the men folk of the group are getting out of hand in some way shape or form um, and and that was really beautiful to experience because the because you could see that in those groups there is a more binary understanding of sex and gender, and you probably find the male, the men are probably um, embodying more masculine qualities, and the women are embodying more feminine qualities, which isn't necessarily how it is in our society today, in in the same way. But there it is probably much clearer in that sense, and therefore often the men are more likely to express. Um, uh, aggression and competition is, is more likely to be appearing from that side. So the women come together and and try in their own way to to diffuse that. But this isn't like toxic masculinity being figured out by amazing women. It's not. It's not. It's like everyone's in this together and everyone loves each other. And it's not that the women fucking hate the men and it's a fight in any way at all. Because it hasn't gone that far. It hasn't, it hasn't gone, gone that far. There's yeah. held lovingly by them, it seems. And so when the women come together, they know better than to try and challenge the men using the same quality of power that the men have, right. which would be fighting, fighting, fighting. <laughs> all of that. So so what they do instead is like, well, we've got our own shit going on here and we're cool. And like, I've got to be careful because I don't want to put words into the women's mouths because I'm not a woman and I, I don't know what's really going on. But what I know as a man experiencing it is that it seems that here comes this, this group of women who are together full solidarity and in their own way are holding space in just extraordinarily powerful way they're half the society and they are coming out and they're singing and they're dancing they're having the best time ever and they're having a really good time and they're clearly like old ladies and little girls all together and they are basically teasing the guys and they're laughing and like sort of like um, play acting some male behavior and (laughs) But it's done with love, but it's yeah. done with strength. And and so if, if a guy's been like a lazy lover or if a guy's been aggressive in the home or if he's getting a bit out of hand, showing off that he's a better hunter or whatever it is that they want to hold in, in account there or hold to account, 
they will they check. will basically yeah to keep in check they will like playfully enact that in the group and then what they have i believe is this unspoken threat that's also there and this is a bit of bruce conjecture but i'll tell you why i think this in a second but there's this sort of threat that's like we women are together we're solid we're there's a solidarity between us and if you don't sort your shit out we're we're going to not give you what you want um and so there's this sort of ultimate threat of a sex strike that's just beneath the surface in this sort of like unspoken understanding perhaps that the main reason that anyone's behaving in any way at all anyway is because of that and so we're holding the key to that so don't fucking misbehave or you won't wow. get any and I, I i don't know if that's what's really happening but the reason I say that, if you, if you, I mean, I know I'm rabbiting a bit, but I'll give you... No, no, it's like... It's really I'll give you a little bit more. It's like, yeah. the reason I say that is because, uh, and again, Jerome and Ingrid were telling me about this, and this is a theory of Chris Knight and Camilla Power, is that um, maybe this, uh, this sex strike threat harks back to something that came about the very earliest times of of humans coming together in society at all as homo sapiens it's like a bonkers idea but when you go and meet the the ben jelly which i did with jerome and ingrid so you're meeting now a, a, a pygmy group of people some people don't like the word pygmy but the, but jerome and ingrid use it in a loving way it's like that's how they describe this group so this is like pygmy language group peoples in the Congo, of which there's many still today, different groups, all throughout the Congo. Um, and so he's been, spent like decades now with this group, off and on, him and his wife, um, Ingrid. And there, and this theory that came out from Chris was like, okay, there was a moment when we shifted somehow from what we were before, before Homo sapiens, another ape form, another primate form, whatever it was, into what we are today. There's some shift. And I, however long that took and whatever the real story of that is, I don't exactly know. But what's interesting is you meet the pygmy Benjeli and they have a, a ritual, song and dance, that relates to what they say is their first moment, like their creation myth, Society, the first moment of society okay. occurring and when you then realize okay well maybe i mean it's now generally accepted that we came from africa and often people from southern africa um is where the sort of most people think now the sand bushmen often people say are like the oldest unbroken lineage of of peoples on the planet right. but they've been they've been obviously affected by the outside world quite a lot over the generations because yeah. they were quite visible Whereas the pygmies are, are roughly the same lineage, age, but they've been hiding in the forest. And so in many ways, their rituals and songs and dances and stuff are probably less influenced by the outside world. So here you have an insight into what's potentially the oldest type of ritual that's, that's recorded on the planet. And they say, this is their oldest. And I happened to be there when they were doing this particular ritual. And what it is, is you've got this spirit of the forest that comes out which is this like apparition of leaves and um, stuff that's just flying around and it looks very phallic 
and it like shoots up and shoots down and spins around and it's like lots and lots of leaves flying around this I mean it looks like a guy with a bunch of leaves on but you can't see the, the guy inside it and they will all say it's a spirit and I'll talk about that later um, but it's and it looks very phallic, phallic so what they say is this is the spirit by which the women became pregnant and by which we were held in the earliest days but what this ritual does is is essentially what it feels like is a reenactment of the women saying no to that and inviting the men to come in and, and form a barricade to stop this thing from getting to them and so that's how this dance plays out is like you've got a ring of men and then the women behind it and this thing is trying trying to stop this spirit from getting to the women because the women will die if, if if she's touched by this thing so in some ways potentially here's the reenactment of a moment where if you think that nearly all other primate groups apart from the bonobos had alpha male harem mm. aggression power and that was how it worked for them you know and that's how it still works for some other primates but maybe and this is the work of chris and camilla it's like well if we were egalitarian for so long when when did we go from that hierarchy aggression female harem single alpha male into groups of societies living as equals what was that transition well this song and dance maybe offers an insight into what that might have been and what what chris's theory is is like it's, uh, it was super interesting it's like maybe as we you know as our hips narrowed we stood upright we had to give birth earlier and earlier to our offspring because the because the head's growing and the hips are narrowing so we give birth to these premature offspring that are helpless mm. and need a lot of help now previously it might have served us very well to have had an alpha male and we get the best genes and he'll just service us all but actually now we need we need some help mm. and you all you're doing is preening your, all you're doing is preening yourself and having a fight every now and then but like i've got one arm that's constantly holding the thing and it's just and that, obviously this is conjecture. I have no idea. These are just theories. But what's really interesting is you think, well, if that was part of it, if the women were wanting a shift, I mean, how long, how many generations, how long this might have taken to come about. But one thing that's really interesting about humankind is that when we go into ostracis, you know, when we're in season, we don't show it very clearly, which other species do very clearly. They announce when they're right. in was we don't i mean you can tell but it's not like it's not like emblazoned and shown and the other thing is of course that when humans come in when females of the humankind come together they often come into synchronicity right, right, yeah. with yeah. with being in season and like maybe the these things were tools or evolutionary adaptations that allowed for the women to come together and say no because if you say no on your own you're just going to get overpowered. But if you say no collectively, perhaps that was something that might have been. Now, of course, this is like, you know, and I, I got to be really careful how I say these stories as well because uh, it's, it just makes me think of the Me Too movement now. <laughs> well, there's this collective saying no. I mean, it culturally it, it, emerging. It, it, I, how how yeah. wonderful might that be? Yeah. But it's like, 
all I know is like here, here's here's a moment in time that not many people are talking about. Here's here's a theory that fits because it has some logical analysis to it. But then also here's this this song and dance that I'm witnessing with this oldest group on the planet and these people who've been living them forever, and then the role of the women in that group, and you see the power of that women and what it's all about is their solidarity. It's like they are together as a unit, and you think oh. Well, here, in every sense, politically, emotionally, spiritually, the women are are equal players, and and there's no the other thing that's really interesting about these groups is like there's no coercion in an egalitarian group. One of the one of the features that nearly all of them have is that as soon as you can walk, you're an equal member of society. No one's telling you you've got to go and do this. You've got to do this. I mean, even in our film with the Panan, you've got you've got the you've got this lady saying here yeah, we often advise and ask our kids to to carry on this this sort of a sharing culture but they never tell them and they never tell them anything it's like they're always kids are free they're equal members and so somehow they they emerge into these two groups and no one's telling them they should no one's putting them in a skirt or asking them to wear blue right? right so it is it is an emergence now i'm not saying that that uh still doesn't have its own form of conditioning because of course they're conditioned from what came before and it's a continuation of what came before um but it doesn't feel forced but what you do end up having is these two very very powerful groups but who are equal but they're different and that's the other thing that often when i talk about egalitarianism to groups people say oh yeah but like how can they be equal when they've got these different roles it's like because we get confused between equality and sameness. And sameness, yeah, yeah, yeah. And like they don't have that issue. It's like no, they understand that every individual is different. They understand that men and women are different, but everyone is equally valid and valued the same. I think it's, it, it comes back to the idea of fitness. You know, it's like the two parts together, like like this enabling a kind of a whole. You know, where it's, it's like a hand in a glove. Where it's you know, if, it, if it's all male and all we've got is a glove and you know everything that's going on in ecology is is to do with this one fitting in with this one and this you know that's that's what we need right the the, the diversity basically yeah i um, mean diversity definitely 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 but what's really interesting about when you're with this group is it feels like the women um they have the wisdom to know that if they held on to power then they would just become another they become a matriarchy which is another form of hierarchy yeah. and that would form resentment and all the rest of it so the way that this works is that they come in and they have their power space in the center, and then they retreat and allow the men in, and then the men will do their thing. And this play between the two is actually one of the most strongest um, aspects to maintaining balance within society. And and I just found that super interesting. And it's like I know there's people who um, would argue the fact that we're in a patriarchy at all, and uh, uh, but having seen that, I would say, well, <laughs> yeah. We're we're a long way from that, and I would do, you know, it feels so um, important to remember that somehow and try what we can and, and see if that might want to come back. I mean, I don't know where we're at today. Obviously, with a much with a very different perspective of of these things, and I'm I'm not saying that um, that I lament that. It may be that we're going in a beautiful way into some androgynous future, and that's going to have its own that's going to have its own beauty. I don't know. It's not. It's, it, all I know is that what worked for them back there as a tool for maintaining balance was was what I just described. And 
it felt really um it felt really powerful to me and it felt like essential almost in a way of controlling and checking this out of control aggression yeah. and, and competition that seems to be relevant today in master cycle I'm just curious about how are we going to deal with this out of control power base that we have today, which is here, basically toxic masculinity. I mean, that's what it is, I guess. That's well, here here is a, a time in history where there was a group of people who were able to deal with that, and they deal, dealt with it not by challenging it using the same quality of power that it was possessing, but by finding their own quality of power and 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 diffusing it rather than fighting it. And I'm like, wow, that is a moment in history that we were truly able to disarm the out-of-control power base. What, and obviously there's been lots of revolutions since, but they never seem to have really done the same thing. They've always either replaced like with like, or they've eked out a little bit of power back from the power base, but the power base has still always been there. Um, whereas here's a group that actually managed to completely diffuse it and create a, a society of equals that was sustained, self-sustaining and and harmonious with nature for the 95% of our time on the planet. That's fucking immense. If we could remember that story and try and find the essences of that, it's like, okay, how did they do it? What did they do? Well, they, they realized what the driving force was of that power. And that power at that time, the driving force for it was um, sexual monopoly. Uh, and so they removed that by saying no and allowed and so diffused his power and then and allowed for this equality to take its place well what could we do then to reenact something similar and i think things like coming to community and moving back to the land and not buying into the corporate might and not buying into the taxes that pay for the madness and not, you know, well that is one thing we could do i also think a rise of of, of um of of, of, you know, female power is also really a big part of it. Well, I think the thing with um, people getting back to land is that because, like, what we, what we, you know, I don't think it's a, in any way an artifice of human culture that, that land and earth is pretty much universally characterised as, as feminine. And, um, you know, you really could characterise the agricultural paradigm as, as a move into basically raping the earth because we, we go in there and just force and inseminate with seeds and, 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 and plows and, and, and all this kind of thing. Uh, whereas the other situation where we're, we're, we're working with and, and, and having to sort of very carefully work with, it sounds a lot like that relationship between the men and the women in that tribe. You know, we, we, we have to position ourselves right, else we ain't getting any. Only in this case, the NE is, is food, clothes mm. and shelter and yeah, all the resources yeah, yeah. that we need. But like, we step outside that balanced relationship and then we've started ourselves down this road to ruin that, that traces right back to the Neolithic era, but dramatically speeds up in, in the Industrial Revolution and now it's dramatically speeding up again with the, to the sort of yeah. the, the artificial intelligence and all the, all the computing-based stuff. But it's basically the same. And somebody was telling me just yesterday, actually, which was just, I mean, he, he didn't give the quote exactly, but but Bacon was apparently giving the the, uh, the manifesto for the Enlightenment movement, you know, of science in terms of, it sounded like rape, basically, that, that we will get the earth to, to just give us what we want without, you know, we just take it. 
apparently, I've got to go and look the code up, but it's mm. apparently graphically describing that kind of male, male yeah. thing, you know, in those in those terms. And it's extraordinary to see that the the actual intellectual birthplace, which is probably a I mean, it was a, it was a machine. Definitely. Yeah, like they were, they were inventing like a machine. Like Descartes yeah. said, you know, like when he was uh, dissecting animals for to find the working parts, it's like, you know, don't worry about their, their squeals. It's just the squeaking of the machine, you know. It's like that's that was there, you know, absolutely. Yeah, and we're living in the middle of that still, and it's all around It's us. all boys with their toys, basically. There's, this, is what, this is what we're looking at. When we start with the plough, and then we have... Descartes and, and Bacon and all those guys spawning dark satanic mills and and all of the machinery that's that is now kind of in, in, inducing our uh, but but now Silicon Valley is the latest the latest wave you know it's mm. come round again and now it touches everything it doesn't just touch stuff it touches your your bling and mental but, life. you know like I I I don't have um yes to everything you say yes to everything you say I'm not I'm not um, I'm not disputing any of it, but what what I'm interested in is how we can go forwards. I think that the the, the idea of turning back the clock isn't going to sell, <laughs> even if even if part of me would love that. Depends what you mean by turning back the clock, though, because to me, turning back the clock is is the right way, like in in the sense that we turn back the clock to the form of relation that we used to have. Sure. That's, so so, so how that works out in practice is, is obviously completely new. There you have, it. There you have yeah. it. So it's like, so of course we're going to be saying the same yeah, thing. Yeah. I, I don't doubt that. But my way of expressing it or yeah. seeing it is a little bit like, you know, what I said about the left and right hemisphere a minute ago. It's like, so imagine that the, the, the Maddox hunter-gatherers are living like in the right hemisphere when the information first comes in. They Here they are, and they're just living in this beautiful experience of symbiosis with nature. And then what we've entered into, this age of separation, which is perhaps a bit like we've come into this area now where we've, we've taken ourselves out of that, where we can see, and we've because we have understood things in a very different way through this age of separation that we're in. We're... we're through science and technology, we, we've done amazing things. I, you know, we're recording our conversation and going to share yeah. it with millions of people potentially um, through the, the technologies that we've experienced as a result of accumulation of food and time to sit back and, and all the rest. Of it. Now, you and I can have a romantic um, wanderings about being hunter gatherers again, but another way of looking at it is like, okay just like the right and left hemisphere it's like the information comes in it gets put into the left where um it's processed in a different way and what should happen then is that information should be then put back into the right hemisphere where it's seen back into the into the um into the wisdom of the whole let's say so in a way you could look at social sort of um, evolution in a similar way it's like perhaps when we were nomadic hunter-gatherers we were abiding in this blissful right hemisphere but what's happened and we can't undo it is that we've gone into this age of separation like coming into the left hemisphere where we've created actually amazing shit the trouble is that that amazing shit is also destroying us um but but there is insight there there is there is something there that is potentially really helpful rather than just turning our back on that and going back to the right we could just take that and apply that to the wisdom of the whole again and then that could be so for me it's like it's a way of Rather than yeah. saying taking back the clock, it's sort of like, what can we do to apply the wisdom of the past 
and merge it with the technology I think and understanding yeah. of today to, to create something beautiful going and, forward. And I think what we do is make everything subservient to the relational, right? That that's that's yeah. that's the issue. Because what, what this stuff is doing is basically it's 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 creating an exponential process of, of abstraction. You know, first yeah. first of all we abstract from, from this ecosystem by isolating this bit of ground and only putting that seed in and so on. And then we we abstract like manufacturing into a factory so that no one is now just getting stuff and using their hands and their, their brain and their tradition to, to make the things that they need for their house. And now we're abstracting social relations by communicating on, on, on phones instead of looking face-to-face, etc. That's that's the thing. So all of those things you could say, well, it's, it, but it's really cool that we could make some stuff and not have to... Well, maybe. But the, the question I've ended up with is that we should be asking is what's the net result here? Is the end result after this amazing thing that we've just devised, whether it's a process or a scientific theory or a machine or whatever, are we now more bonded within our bodies, between each other and with the land as a result of this thing, or less bonded? Mm. And if it's less bonded, we're going to have to do some kind of thing like carbon offsetting. We're going to have to do something else around this that makes it now more relational as the net gain. I think that's the way to think about it. I, but, uh, I, I totally hear you, and I think that's, uh, that is putting things into the wisdom of the right, to yeah. see things as whole, to see things yeah. as interrelated, to think things as alive, to feel things as um, as the same as and empathically connected to. So totally hear that. And yeah, uh, 90% of the shit that we've come up with is not only unsustainable, but it's also life-depleting in this age of separation that we've been in. So I'm not in any way going... Oh, we've just got to tinker it and it will be fine. No, no, no. I'm in for We've got to have a major rethink. I mean, like, yeah. radical. Yeah. It's not even major rethink. It's like, I think, for me, um, yeah, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't say, but, you know, some form of collapse has got to happen because we cannot continue with this unlimited growth paradigm that we're in and this sort of uh, uh, increasing atomization into separation. The American dream of like life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness is like, it's so individualistic. It's like liberty, what freedom from everything. No, 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 we shouldn't be free, free, free from everything. We have responsibilities to each other and to planet. It's like, we have to be, we have to limit and reevaluate the narratives that that, that we that we buy into and that, that, that are the ones that give us meaning and drive in life at the moment they're my own happiness my own freedom it's like no 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 how about our kids and the future generations and the and the planet that will hold them make that our meaning and then we can figure out a future together and you'll find that a lot of the shit that we've come up with and the systems and the and all of that will just fall by the wayside once we get rid of ourselves being the center because they're of no use whatsoever That's, for that particular no, project yeah no. yeah yeah so I think a massive shift in narrative as well, and that's what I liked about the the the, the Benjeli having this ritual that reminded them of this moment when they all became equals, because they didn't have to relive that every generation. They didn't have to like go out and find for themselves. Oh God, if we have a leader, it's all going to go. They basically maintained a story, and we know that stories are the humankind's most powerful tool. Stories are what enable vast ways of people to be able to act in, in unison, even if they've never met each other, even if they never do meet each other, because they all buy into the same story. I mean, religion is a story. Like, um, 
money is a story. I mean, we all agree on it, all sorts of different parts of the world, and, and it allows us to act in a certain way. Nationalism, I mean, all these things fucked, but they are indicators of how humankind with the right narrative can actually act in unison. And all we have to do is shift this. I mean, at the moment, we're mostly existing in the sort of paradigm of the, the what's come about from, um, you know, neoliberal ideas and, and like the, the economic system and the American dream and all those things, which are so individualistic. And to place and to create a new narrative of like, actually, we've just got to care for nature and the future generations. And we could we could have a shift in no time if we wanted, if we want, you know, if we chose to buy into that. I mean, obviously, that's not necessarily going to happen. But what's interesting as well today is that like it or hate it, the Internet does connect us all globally. Yeah. And like it or hate it are we're facing global fucking catastrophes that might be big enough to bring us together. To bring everyone to their senses. So there is this really interesting time in history. And not only that, but it is the first time that actually we're waking up to our true egalitarian past. You know, when Hobbes is around or Rousseau or even Jesus or Mohammed or Buddha or fucking Confucius or Lao Tzu or any of those people, none of them knew about our egalitarian past. I mean, Rousseau might have touched on it, but he was just thrown out of court as being a romantic. No one really knew. I mean, there were tribes that were met, but they weren't necessarily egalitarian I tribes. Think, I think the Garden of Eden has got it, personally. Yeah, so there you have it. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a narrative that's being put in uh, one of our oldest books as, as a myth. And like most people, again, just like, yeah, well, it's just like, you know, it's a romantic illusion to think that there was this, like, golden age beforehand. But what we're experiencing now is shit. And what I've experienced in my own life, having been the guy lucky enough to meet all these tribes around the world, is, fuck, no, this isn't romantic. Well, it is romantic, but that doesn't mean that that it's not true. Here's the Penan. That is, that they were, for me, it's like, this is a life-changing experience. This is a harmonious group of people doing harmoniously with each other and with nature. So much so that they couldn't even prove that they'd even been there and couldn't even get a right to defend their own or to have a, their own land given them because the, because the government of Malaysia says in order to get land tenure, you've got to show that you've been there. And they're like, we fucking can't. We, don't, we have no impact on it whatsoever. So, yeah, I'm up for romance. It's like romance to me isn't like, doesn't mean not true. Romance is like that. Yes. It's a wonderful story. I'll tell you what, I'm conscious of the fact that two blokes have been sitting here talking about gender issues and things like that. Yeah. <laughs> we haven't given you a word in edge I've noticed that as well, funnily enough. Yeah. yeah. So had I, but... It's all right. Um, yeah, there's like kind of a lot to assimilate. This is stuff that I've heard before. And it's interesting to hear. And I've got friends who are very fond of espousing these sort of primitive views on, primitivist views on, on gender and gender roles. What I'm very wary of is that... <laughs> We've come a long way in having, uh, you know, a, a broader choice in terms of actually, I don't want my role in society to be defined by my gender. I'm very, very wary of this idea that, like, oh, if we just let women properly be women and the men properly be men, and we'll find this kind of like, you know, cosy, jokey way to interact and offset any tensions and conflict. 
I'm not panning that. I'm not saying that, you know, that that's without validity or appeal. I'm just, my gut reaction to hearing that sort of conversation is, okay, this still kind of makes me feel like it's dependent on me fulfilling a certain and predestined role within my society. Now, the fact that I don't feel comfortable with that might in fact be a product of the environment that I've grown up in. And it's, you know, particularly at a point in in the change in that and the increasing freedom and increasing autonomy and independence of women in my society is obviously something that I'm just going to go, oh, I'm not throwing that shit away. You know, so it's, yeah, it's really complicated. It's interesting to think about. Um, yeah, I was kind of sitting there processing quite a lot while you're talking. Thinking, oh, I'm not quite sure how to respond to this right this minute. I kind of need to go away and think about it more. But that's my initial. Yeah, beautiful. Oh, I'm, I'm not very comfortable with this. Yeah. Um, I don't think that I don't think that egalitarianism is dependent on that at all. And for me, I you know like I, I, I'm, I've got quite a strong adherence to the idea that. That we shouldn't, yeah. One of the biggest problems that we have is this kind of long, long history of being defined in terms of what and who we can be and what roles we can play, but being defined by by our gender. And there are also lots of examples of, if you like, sort of indigenous societies or primitive societies, where there is an aspect of gender fluidity in that as well. And there's a lot more leeway given to the idea that things aren't quite as fixed and things aren't intransigent in that sense and it's again it's not as if I'm kind of have some sort of idea of a androgynous non-binary future for the for human society that's not that's not something that I kind of hold up as, as, as being utopian I know people that do but um that's not really what I'm talking about it's it's more the kind of removal of expectations and allowing people, you know, as people, just to follow the things that they're passionate about, the things that they're interested in. I do a lot, you know, I work in a very male-dominated industry. Um, I do a lot of things that where I, in one of these societies, would be like, yeah, but women don't do that. So it's, it's a very interesting thing to think about in terms of, you, you know, how we, how we look at, at gender and conflict and balancing that power. No, I totally hear you, and I, don't, I, I, you know, when I've talked to my girlfriends, and I've, I apologise if my rant wasn't wasn't inclusive, um, but uh, are you alright? I was listening, you know. Uh, I guess I had the thing to, to like to get out. No, when I have entered yeah, into sure. wonderful um, wonderful conversations with friends of mine who have obviously also spent a lot of time thinking about these things, and maybe what I'm bringing is like not an interruption, but it's like well, maybe it is. It's an interruption into previous thought process or direction and so we've had amazing I've had just wonderful conversations and learned so much and generally what I try and do when when I'm offering these thoughts is like and I, I mean I, I didn't do a very good job this time because I was like definitely in a energized role but it was like I don't know what the qualities of if if, if women were to get together how they would want to be I do believe mm. that when women get together something could emerge that would be really beautiful and uh, and um and needed in society because it doesn't feel to me like it's there i mean it is we obviously have very balanced family 
families now and we have very balanced communities, but it feels like the, the main direction of national policy doesn't feel like it has um, that. I would like yeah. that to be there. It doesn't feel like it's there as a, as a, as a, as a society as a whole. Yeah, but I, I mean, for me, a lot of that is down to, the, it's the way we live in our communities it's you know it's it's the kind of nuclear family concept it's the, it's the physical separation like we all need our own space we all quite enjoy a bit of privacy and a bit of solitude at times i'm not suggesting that we the way forward is to you know but we we lack we lack communal space we lack a sharing of day-to-day tasks we lack eating together in a wider group than you know a small family group this isn't or people i'm not saying that young people do this but it is not typical it's not part of our culture it's not part of our society what is it um, to, to come together in these yeah 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 in well terms not of, today no no in, no exactly yeah in, in terms of, of a more day-to-day sharing of, of environment of resources of time of company of you know, passing those ideas around. So oh, we have elements of that, what some of us do, you know, some of us might get an element of that from our workplace. Some of us might get an element of that from, you know, like, I don't know, a group of friends you get on the public, for example. But it's not, it's not structured into our society anymore. So this is what, this is what I was talking about in terms of stability of community being something that I think we've relatively recently moved away from. I'm not saying, again, that everybody needs to be staying in the same place with the same people and that we should go back to some idea of, like, or, you know, you know, you can't leave the village. Um, you know, obviously people should have the freedom to go and explore other societies, you know, explore other environments, explore other communities. I'm not saying that's in any way a bad thing. But I can't help thinking that, that because of it, that a lot of, you know, there are a lot of issues around this relatively recent loss of to some degree stability of community but also closeness of community you know you're not exchanging no, ideas I, and feelings and views and and checking in sure. on, on, a, on a daily basis but, in, a, in a in that slightly wider group where you've got more diversity you've got you know you're going to get different reactions and responses from different members of your community and ultimately you're within a wider group of people that you know very well and it's this idea of familiarity. Again, and I kind of feel... It, it, again, it's a relatively recent shift that that we haven't had that. So you're growing up in an environment where you are very, very familiar with the people around you, pretty much, you know, most of the time. But we're now dealing with, with new stuff and input all the time. And it wouldn't surprise me if that has a role in triggering a higher level of just basic stress of being kind of you've got these kind of primal stress response of like is this person are they a threat this is new uh don't know what's going on here and i'm what i'm thinking in terms of is that versus a more you know being part of a more established community and society where it's just it's a given yeah yeah totally i mean like I, where there's I, comfort and safety I totally here i mean i think that is <gasps> one of i feel like the, i'm sort of like an incredible tradition list in some way no, but i think control, i think what know. i think what I but it's agree. not it's not what i mean I'm, I'm just kind of thinking about the contrast between you know that kind of environment and what we now 
you know, dealing with in Western, well, a lot, you know, particularly in Western society. Sure. Um, well, one of the things that, if, if, if you remember, I talked about an egalitarian society, one of the key aspects of it is there's no coercion. And on a few yeah. occasions you were like, what I don't really like is that they have to be like this or they have, no one has to be like anything. What it is, is it's a shift in narrative where people naturally feel that that would be better for them. Yeah. And that is the case with all of the narratives that we have at the moment, like more money, more fame, more goods, more travel, more mm. choice, more, all of these things are the narratives that we're giving our kids and our advertisers are giving us, uh, is saying that this is what's going to bring you happiness. What I think you're offering, which is this sort of insight into more traditional values, and what I'm talking about, which is an insight into indigenous or especially egalitarian values, is like, is actually questioning that. And it may be that we, that we get to a place where people find that out for themselves. Yeah. I know that in my life that I've realised that more choice, more money, more fame, more hasn't helped me at all. It's actually crippled me. Mm. Ultimate choice because I've been lucky enough to get to the ends of these some of these areas where yeah. I've realised shit compared to where I was before. This is like a, a nightmare. Yeah. And I'm you know and I'm not like super rich, or super famous, but I felt felt the edges of that. Yeah. And so it's very clear for me that some of these narratives. But I don't think we need to make laws about that. I'm not talking about traditional values. I'm talking about concepts of closeness of community and a day-to-day shared sense of purpose and responsibility towards each other. Totally. And that's another thing. That's that's what what I'm talking about. It's those fundamental ideas. And people can find that as well. It's like, I think that that's just another narrative that can be shifted. It's like, by the way, we are better off when we know each other. We are better off when we have a group of people around us that know us intimately yeah. and that community is the best way to raise kids and that you might find that a lot of the issues that we are experiencing in society today might just dis- dis- disseminate and disperse anyway as a result of different so role models within created. society, different roles within society. And it doesn't mean in any way that any group has to be this or any group has to be that at all mm. it may just be that when those groups of and individuals are fully empowered to be whatever they want to be that they might find themselves moving in a surprising direction and you, yeah and you could be quite right i, I have no idea no, all i know is that <laughs> I, all, all i know is that that there was a time when balance within society was held in a certain way i i don't know that we're, and I think I said this when I was saying it, it's like, I don't know if that's a time gone by and we're heading towards something more beautiful or whether that's something that's going to really cripple us because we need that. Mm. I just don't know. And I definitely don't want to be the person that says, if you're feeling this, you're wrong. Because mm. that's just not, I mean, there's no way. If you're feeling that, you're feeling that. And it's not for me to say you're not feeling that, whatever that is. But what, I, what I'm interested in is how are we going to tackle the power base? How are we going to get back to nature? How are we going to come back together? And here are some insights. Let's discuss them lovingly. Let's discuss them yeah, openly. Let's let's see see what comes up because there's some wisdom in it. I mean, the thing that that comes out of this for me is the idea of women all sitting together in a room together. Now, or blokes doing the same, because whatever we're talking about, how it spins out in terms of our personality and what we actually do all day, or what the role is we feel. Mm. I think there's something, especially with all this emphasis on embodiment you know well if i'm in a male body with the stuff that goes with that and then hanging out with guys which is something that would have happened in traditional society yeah. as well, there's something about that it doesn't necessarily 
equal any of the stereotyping you're talking about in terms of roles or who you can be, but like there's something about being able to be with people that've got the same biology as me just for that time period. And yeah. the kind of things we talk about that we don't talk about with the girls and I think there's something about that, that that's that's really good, life giving mm-hmm. and not oppressive or But I also if someone doesn't want to identify, that's totally cool too. And it's not it's not for me my my biggest thing is it's non coercive. Yeah. I yeah. just happen to think that the net well I happen to think that what I've experienced in those places naturally occurred. Whether that is a genie that we can't put back in the bottle and we don't want to, or whether that is actually something that might come back as a result of coming together and having shared role models in society and community and nature connection and all these things. I don't know. I, I just want to find a future for our kids in the knowledge that we need to have balance within our communities and balance with nature. Any tool that can offer that is one that we need to talk about. Mm. And that's what we're doing. We've just got to talk about it lovingly, yeah. not asserting that I know better. It's just I happen to have had this privilege of experiencing something and I'd love to yeah. share that. Which harks back to we have to protect the women because women have the babies. And, and we need that. We need to, you know, we need to kind of continue our community. We need to, it's, it's biological imperative. I, you know, for me, that's one of the primary reasons that in traditional societies you see less of the women going out hunting, the women doing more physical, very more risky things perhaps, you know, because it's sure as shit not about intrinsic ability or innate strength or because you can oh, you can train your body. Your, your body is crafted by the things that you do growing up. It really is. So yeah, it's really interesting. But it, yeah, maybe, maybe I... It's, it's, it's very difficult you know, on a personal level for, for me to say, yeah, maybe maybe in that environment, in that society where there's, there isn't that kind of history of value and hierarchy and patriarchy, whether I'd be like, totes happy to, you know, just just not, and wouldn't want to, to push for a different role or, or whatever. But I think what... <laughs> the, the crucial thing is what we're talking about is looking at moving forward, isn't it? It's how Definitely. do we engender positive shifts in the way we relate to the way we relate to each other, to environment, to our planet. That's what it's all about. So yeah, I mean, this is exactly what we should be doing: just sitting and discussing these, you know, these myriad possibilities. Looking, and you've had, you know, you have amazing opportunities to go and really embed yourself in, in, in a whole range of different communities with different approaches and different ways of being together, which is, you know, hugely valuable. Which is why I'm quite happy to sit and listen to you, to be fair. I haven't had these experiences, well, not to such a degree, to a much lesser degree. Um, so, yeah, yeah I'm, quite, I'm quite happy to just mm. kind of sit and take that in and take that on board and you know, I've got to go away and process that to some extent. So, um, so yeah. Well, thank you. It's, you know, it, it's interesting. Most of what I'm saying is just based on the very small experience I've had of these yeah. egalitarian societies. Most of the other yeah. tribes I've met are actually, some of them are supremely patriarchal and misogynistic in their own right. I mean, yeah. lots of tribes are not uh, are getting, you know, and there's all these different ways that yeah. you can like, be in monogamy or or polygamy or polyandry. All of it. It's yeah. all out there, and I've lived with nearly all of them. Yeah. But the, the egalitarian tribes were mostly serial monogamous, mm-hmm. interestingly, and the women were 
empowered. Yeah. And that's what I'm interested in. And in many ways, all the other groups, as I said at the beginning, for all the wonderful blessings that I received as meeting them, I saw that actually a lot of the stresses were very similar to the ones that we have. Yeah. And those that sort of the role division of labour and all the rest of it was was maybe not as um, as willfully accepted because often there was patriarchy within society mm. and strong man leaders and all the rest of it. Yeah, yeah. That's not the groups I'm really interested. Or I love them and I have blessings and wisdom received, but they're not the ones I'm referring to when I come with these uh, other other ideas. It's like I sure. you know, I really felt something very different when I was living where, yeah. where, where yeah. you feel the power of the women together it was like wow um, but yeah as I said earlier maybe that maybe that's time gone by and we are now experiencing something new we'll, we'll find out we'll find out what that is it's just really, it's just really hard to, to know what to say isn't it well, I think in so many ways we're also wounded. and this is by the way this is not relating to sex and gender but I just think our wounding as a result of the difficulties we've received in our upbringing just as boys and girls in, in life and nothing to do with you know roles or, or sex or gender but just mm-hmm. like just the trauma that we've so many received anyway yeah just means that so much I mean, we couldn't go and be egalitarian tomorrow anyway even if we did go and spend loads of times in the forest and drank a lot of ayahuasca and went for passengers it's like I think it's going to take us a lot of time to get rid of so much of our social behaviour and so much of our narratives. And so it's like, yeah, it's not just going to be a question of bringing a new narrative and just getting all the women together and saying, being in nature and we're all going to be fine. Mm. It, it, it's going to take more than that because we're, we're all carrying so much pain. And I think of the journey that I've been on to do my healing and I've got, you know, at least I had a loving parents, you know. It's like some people grew up with real abuse and real difficulties mm. and... And they look inside themselves and feel that, and yeah. it's real for them, yeah. you know. And so I get it. We've got a lot to heal, and who knows what? Yeah, we really have. <laughs> who knows what will yeah. what will come of that? But I do think that these, you know, these insights can can be helpful. Perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, we we we're all at the end of the day just kind of musing on what our experiences have thrown up and it doesn't mean that any one of us has got the right answer the right answer doesn't really exist but we're working but you know in terms of like working towards a common end well the right answer maybe not but the right approach yeah yeah yeah, absolutely yeah yeah stone ads thank you for joining us for this week's worldwide podcast and as ever I'd encourage you to go to the Forager webpage if you just search Forager Limited or it's www.forager.org.uk forward slash podcast. It's always worth going on there to see the, um, the the notes from any given episode and there's always links there to what we've referred to. And in this case, there's links to Nicola's Facebook and Instagram pages um, if you'd like to check her out, especially if you live um, anywhere near the Lake District um, in England. And there's links to some of the, the things we mentioned, such as the Radical Anthropology Project, links to other talks by Bruce, etc., etc., etc. So just go there and have a look. And it's worth mentioning where we are in, in, in the year in terms of wild things coming through. In England just now, uh, we have the first blossom of spring. <clears throat> it's a thing called cherry plum, and it's a, a stone fruit and related to the almond. And I always think when, when I see the first of these flowers coming out, 
of the, uh, the the Hebrew culture around almonds because um, the Hebrew word for awaken and the Hebrew word for almond are pretty much the same. Um, so the the um, symbolism there is that the well, it's not even symbolism, I guess. The 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 um, almond blossom coming out was the the first sign of the land awakening, how everything had been dormant and the seemingly dead branches of trees suddenly awaken with these um, white blossoms that announce the uh, the, the coming of, of the new life of the new year. And that's very true um, on our rather stark landscape, all the hedgerows and so on with, with no greenery at the moment. And yet... Um, these are very visible when they come out, the, the white blossoms of the cherry plum blossom, and they're closely followed by the slow or blackthorn blossom in a few weeks. So uh, there's a way to, to celebrate this spring emergence, which is to gather some of those blossoms because they taste intensely of almonds. And, um, you know, they can be put into pancakes on Shrove Tuesday. You can make a syrup or an ice cream out of them. Um, I'm just about to make a birthday cake. Um for my wife's 50th birthday, and they're going to be um, scattered over the top of the cake. So, you know, there's a way of eating that, almost like a, a, a sacrament of spring, you know, to participate in the fact that the sap is rising and life is re-emerging um, after this time of winter dormancy. Okay, so that's it for this week's World Wild Podcast. 